Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to the latest meeting of the Ridley Scott Appreciation Society Fan Club. <laughs> I am Mike Spring, president and founder. And I'm Phil Edwards. I'm the guy who heckles a lot at the back of a Ridley Scott film. <laughs> Going, why can't this be a little bit better? <laughs> right. Yeah, also, we also do the same thing for Christopher Nolan films. Well, except that I like Christopher Nolan, so that's... that's... It's just so cold. <laughs> why is it always so cold? You're the, the lone member of the of that fan club, but I think we're, we're both in the Ridley Scott fan club. Well, yeah, I've, well, Christopher Nolan started good and then just seems to be... Yeah, but he's got a little more time to come around. Very true. Dunkirk does look good. But also, I'll give both of those directors, they do make beautiful looking films. That is, that is for sure. So, Phil, how are you doing today? Well, Mike, you've got my name wrong. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the fearless legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Apart from that, everything's good. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I got a new tattoo on my back. It says, dude. Sweet. <laughs> All right, well, that's it. We're done. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you all next week. Yes, yeah, see if you can guess what films we are doing right, this week. Right. Yes, we're very subtle in our, in our introductions to those. But, but for those people who may not have picked up on it, Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people what we are talking about in this episode? Yes, we are doing Jaws and Hot Fuzz. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was obvious, yeah. right? I mean, you know, I think the, the obviously everyone remembers Roy Scheider having a dude tattoo on his back in Jaws. I know, and the whole bit with the three of them and the boat just comparing tattoos, you know, dude, sweet, <laughs> right? bloody hell, exactly. oh, that's amazing. It's a classic scene. Yeah, brilliant. And, uh, you know, of course, Hot Fuzz as well, the whole thing with the Gladiator Arena, right. you know, in Scunthorpe, right. the little town in, yeah. in Britain. Yeah, beautiful. Yes, there you no. go. Now, as you would have guessed, we are, be, we are doing, both from 2000, these films, uh, Gladiator by Ridley Scott. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. dude where's my car not by ridley scott no not by ridley scott you, you can tell it's not by ridley scott because it's funny it is funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> not the greatest comedy one but one of those ones you put on and, and you end up giggling even in places when you know you probably shouldn't exactly oh yeah and we also got our top 10 favorite films of 1948 yes lots to cover in this episode so uh, i know everyone wants to hear us get into our you know effusive praise for ridley scott anybody who's been listening to the show for a while will know what huge ridley scott fans we both are but uh before that why don't we start things off with a little bit of dude where's my car how's that sound phil sounds sweet <laughs> do you want to give us a rundown of the events Dude, where's my car? Yes, such as they are. Um, yeah. So, okay, well, Jesse, played by Ashton Kutcher, and Chester, played by Sean William Scott, wake up with new tattoos and no memories of the previous night. Their fridge is full of pudding, and they have angry voicemails from their girlfriends. Jesse's car is missing, and so are their girlfriend's anniversary presents. As they try to piece together the night before, they encounter a transgendered stripper, an angry Chinese food restaurant worker... Angry ostriches, stupid llamas, mm -hmm. some tough guy jocks, a couple of police officers, and much more. It's a typical night out, really, isn't it? Yeah, really, pretty much is. They get mixed up with a UFO cult, Zoltan, <laughs> uh, who are looking for a device that can destroy the universe, and they accidentally activate it. But they manage to get it into the hands of the right aliens and deactivate it at the last minute. Then there's a thing that's hard to explain with a giant alien, but Chester and Jesse save the day, and the aliens wipe their minds, and they wake up the next morning with everything fixed with their girlfriends. And that is pretty much the plot, as if you will, of Dude, Where's My Car? Yeah, very nicely done because it's... Uh... Yeah, it's a bit all over the place to film, but some good moments. Yeah, you know, I have to say, my wife and I both really love this movie. We we saw it in theaters together, and uh, this was in our early dating days, but it looked like one of those kind of fun movies to go out and see. And, and it is it is the, the epitome of a stupid comedy, Yeah, um, but yeah. it's also, to me, one of the best examples of how stupid comedies can be really funny. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, a, st a stoner comedy such as this, sometimes it's, it's just... 
you you put it on, you know, you know, you're gonna, you don't have to think too hard, and you know, you'll probably have a few laughs on on the way. Right. I mean, I I like a good intelligent comedy, and that's what I prefer. But once in a while, a movie that's just filled with lowest common denominator humor and you know really obvious jokes but does them well can be really funny and i think i think this movie is it makes me laugh i love the whole you know chinese food and then and then no and then you know the the thing with the llamas or the ostriches whichever you prefer to call them you know i just i i find it all very funny so it's a good film yes yes it's uh well it's not my favorite of the stoner comedy genre but it's always whenever i've watched it i have laughed yeah yeah uh, quite a bit through it and it's but i uh, to be honest, I've never been bothered by Ashton Kutcher and Sean William Scott. I know a lot of people you know, slag them off, but uh, yeah, I've, I always find them quite personable, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, Phil, why don't you go ahead and kick us off with your day after? Okay, Jesse, Chester, Wanda, and Wilma celebrate their one-year anniversary. They eat too much chocolate pudding, but all have a great night. The girls love the new tattoos the boys got. The night continues and, and follows on over the weekend with lots of booze, Chinese food, and mini-golf. Turns out the alien dudes also left them a whole heap of cash to help them celebrate, so they end up, uh, you know, having a wild time, even though they're still not quite sure what went on. A few days later, Wanda and Wilma, though, wake up. They're hungover and spend a few moments drinking coffee and trying to wake up properly. Then suddenly Wilma looks around. Dude, where are Jesse and Chester, she says. (laughs) That's my day after. All right. Well, I think there may be a few uh, similarities um, thematically, I'll say. I mean, the, some of the, the events are different, but we may have had some similar ideas, but that's all right. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll yeah. See. On, what have you got then? Hit me with it. All right. Well, the next day, Jesse and Chester are relaxing at home when the doorbell rings. When they answer it, there are three guys standing there, one who's really good looking, one with a Mike Tyson tattoo on his face, and one who <laughs> seems like a redheaded man child. <laughs> They're looking for their missing friend and had gotten a tip that Jesse and Chester may have run into him. But they don't have any memories of that and aren't able to help them. They suggest the guys try the strip club, the Chinese restaurant, or the llama farm and then send them on their way. After a couple hours of playing video games, eating pudding, and generally chilling out, they finally decide to head out to the mall. While they're goofing around, they accidentally knock a portly mall security guard off his Segway. And he chases them, but finally they escape from him and leave the mall. The next day, though, they wake up with no memories of the night before at all. Jesse's car is gone again, and they look at each other and say in unison, Dude, not again! And that's where we'll leave it for now. Excellent. Although I'm not sure whether I should be proud of the fact I got the Paul Block Mile Cup reference. I feel quite <laughs> well, I mean, that. I, I made it obvious enough that <laughs> I think if you didn't reference, catch it, that wouldn't, that wouldn't, you know, that would just show that you did, had a poor movie knowledge. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Well, that's very good. I, I look forward to seeing what happened. When they're All missing right. Well, I'm, I'm curious to see as well what's going to happen with uh, Wendy and Wilma. Okay. What's their names? Yeah, Wanda and Wilma, I think. Wanda and Wilma. All right, go ahead. Okay, Wanda and Wilma cannot find the boys anywhere. However, they do find that the bathtub is full of Twinkies, there is a tank parked in the garden, and David Hasselhoff <laughs> is asleep on the sofa. <laughs> Going outside, they can see their boy's car, which is a Renault 5, parked on the street. However, it has no wheels. Next to it is a black Trans Am with a glowing red stripe. It's Kit. Nice. The doors of the Trans Am opens... Ladies, we must move quickly, says the car. That's my immediate aftermath. I like it. Thank you. I like it. It's funny because I think we're on the same spiritual path, but the individual events are, are certainly different. Well, I think we've all been on the spiritual path, you know, after <laughs> having some some booze, too much booze. <laughs> right. Or too much pudding, as the case may be. Okay, then. What's, uh, what's happened with your immediate aftermath? Well, Jesse and Chester begin to retrace their steps from the night before. Their travels take them from a plant greenhouse to a frat house on a college dormitory to an abandoned movie theater to a chocolate-making factory. Eventually, they end up at a large mansion in a glitzy neighborhood. They look at each other in awe when they realize that Jesse's car is parked in the driveway. They run up to it, and there's a note on the windshield that says, Don't leave without saying goodbye. They walk up to the house and ring the doorbell. A moment later, the door opens, and there, wearing leather chaps, a feathered boa, and nothing else, is Johnny Depp. <laughs> Boys, he exclaims, welcome back. And that's the immediate aftermath. Yeah, and you know what? That wouldn't at all surprise me. You know, if you did. Right, did couldn't you see if they made a sequel yeah. to Dude Where's My Car, that like, Johnny Depp showing up? He'd be like the perfect yeah. cameo. Yeah, Johnny Depp's choices lately, yeah, that would be a good one. <laughs> right, that's what I mean. Like, I, I don't know. I could just see it and him, like, kind of doing his, his Captain Jack voice a little bit, but wearing, like, really outlandish clothing and that big, like, feather <laughs> hat thingy he always wears. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing what uh, Johnny Depp gets up to. Yes, well, let's see what happens first with uh, the girls and Kit. So give us your long term. They get in the car and Kit drives off. And he explains that the events of Knight Ride and various other TV shows were all real. Oh. David Hasselhoff is a secret agent, but the last mission saw him hit with some kind of sleep ray. Jesse, Chester, Wonder, and Wilma had got mixed up in events, 
and the boys had been captured. Hasselhoff managed to get the girls to safety, but they were all hit with an amnesia ray, which explains why they couldn't remember what's been happening. Mm. Kit was now taking them to see Agent Scully and Mulder of the FBI. Nice. Once there, they are brought up to speed by the agents. Aliens from a different dimension, possibly the eighth dimension, were invading. The A-Team, Buffy, Zach Morris, Street Hawk, <laughs> Airwolf, The Fresh Prince, Sabrina, Agent Dale Cooper, Magnum, Alf, Crockett and Tubbs, MacGyver, Ralph Hinckley and Dr. Sam Beckett were all involved in the war to save Earth. Jesse and Chester had been trapped with some others when Zach Morris's timeout went wrong. It was now up to Wanda and Wilma to save the day. Sweet, said Wilma, as they loaded up and headed out to fight the aliens. And that's my long term. Well, I love it. I love all the uh, all the 80s and 90s TV shows. Wait, isn't Zach Morris, though, from Saved by the Bell? Yes, yeah. yeah. But, you know, okay. he could stop time, so I thought that was a good, good ability to have. <laughs> okay. And Ralph Hinckley, that was Greatest American Yes, girl, it was. Right? Well, don't forget that one. Look yes. at me. All right. Okay. Excellent. I wasn't yes, sure if you, you get that one or not because I couldn't. Yeah, no, I like that. I couldn't remember his name. I had to look that one up. <laughs> well, I think if you had quizzed me and said, who was the Greatest American Hero, I might have failed. But when I heard it, yeah. I said, I know that. Yeah, name. I did like that show. I only seen oh, it. I love that show. It only show. played a few times over here. Yeah. But uh, the bits I saw, I always quite liked it. It was great. Okay, then. So what have you got, though, for your long term? What's happened with uh, Johnny Depp's mansion? All right. Well, Jesse and Chester listen as Johnny Depp fills them in on their night of debauchery. They can't believe that they wrestled a 30-foot python, made out with Tara Reid, or learned to fly an airplane. <laughs> Johnny reveals that the three of them got new matching tattoos on their shoulders that all say Johnny and the Deppettes. <laughs> you know, with Ch- Jesse and Chester, of course, are the Deppettes. Yeah, yeah. After Johnny thanks them for saving him from the hang-gliding bank robber, Jesse and Chester finally head off on their way while making promises to return to Depp's house for another night of adventure soon. They head home, and when they get there, their twin girlfriends are waiting for them. Oh my gosh, they exclaim. We can't believe you asked us to marry you last night. We want to start planning our weddings right away. Jesse and Chester look at each other and say, Dude, (laughs) their wildest adventure yet is just about to begin. Excellent. Thank you. I like the way you got uh, Tara Reid into it. Yeah, it's the kind of film she'd be in. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. kind of. Again, I thought like, hmm, fitting, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Excellent. No, I like it. Very cool. All right. Well, great. So, uh, Phil, tell me, dude, where's my trivia? Okay, sweet stuff. Here we go. Jason Reitman, he turned down two offers to direct the film. Uh, As I've already said, the car was a Renault 5. There was a sequel uh, being developed, but that was never made, and that was going to be called Seriously Dude, Where's My Car? I wish they'd done it. Yeah, the story for this film, though, came from a rejected Beavers and Butthead live-action movie pitch. Oh, that's funny. Uh, And Ashton Kutcher was going to turn down the role, but then he read the script and got to the tattoo scene and couldn't stop laughing. (laughs) The tattoo scene is great. Yeah, it does. That's the one that sort of (laughs) tips you over the edge of you. If you you get to that point and you're not laughing, then you're not going to like any of the film. (laughs) Right, 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 exactly. But that's, uh, that's Dude, Where's My Car? Very cool. All right. Well, let's move on to a movie that uh, we can change things up from a, a relatively funny, stupid comedy comedy to a movie that is devoid of any humor or mirth whatsoever. Yeah, pretty much. And reading when I was doing my trivia list, the, the, the amount of rewrites, I mean, the script wasn't set when they started doing it, and then it kept getting rewritten because, uh, well, because sadly we had the passing of Oliver Reed. And right. he didn't want to, f- when he was alive, he didn't want to work after five. And then <laughs> that must be nice. uh, Russell Crowe was doing lots of rewrites and changes like that as it was going on because he didn't think the script was to be good to begin with. So there was lots of changes throughout the film, which probably, which never helps any film. No. But uh, it, it does come across that it's all a bit patchy in places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we all know I'm not really a big Ridley Scott fan. And so, you know, as with all of his movies, this one certainly looks terrific, but it, it you know, I remember going to see it and wanting like an action movie and getting a Shakespearean drama instead. Yeah. And that's great if you like Shakespeare, which I don't particularly. Um, but, you know, I remember it being something like seven hours long <laughs> and there was like, you know, a couple major action sequences, but the rest of it was just people talking at each other and looking really dour. And it's just like, oh my God, this is the most boring movie in the world. Yeah. And um, I just, it's just that typical Ridley Scott, so overly serious. Not that I think it needed to be a comedy, but I always feel like in movies like this, especially ones that are, you know, three hours long or whatever, there's always room for a little bit of lightheartedness. Yeah, because in, in real life, there's humor, even in the darkest times. There's always right. a bit of humor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not not saying he should be laughing in the scenes where his family is killed or whatever, but like, <laughs> you know, in the gladiator, like when he's bonding with his friend with, you know, Juba or whatever yeah, his name yeah. was, like stuff like that, they could have worked some in and just, there really isn't. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan. I know this is a popular film and that re- people really like it and that, that's great. But um, I will say this. 
I didn't kill anybody with a bus because oh. that really wouldn't have worked yeah, yeah. <laughs> in 180 AD. Unless you had a time travel element. In yeah. it. But uh, no, I remember going to pictures and being really disappointed at the end, especially because the opening sequence in the uh, you know the forest and the big battle, I really liked that. There was a good atmosphere about it, and I was going, ooh, this could be, this is going to be a bit meaty and a bit gritty, and then it sort of all just, it just withered away as it went on, and some really bad CGI of the city. Yes, you know, A bit yes. too dark and gloomy, and, and it sort of made everything look a bit muddy. And uh, yeah. what, what else? Uh, and it was, there wasn't enough stuff in the arena. Right, You know, right. That's what they sold the movie yeah. on, and it was barely in it. Yeah. Should have been lots more of that kind of stuff. Just disappointing I didn't. I didn't hate the movie. I was just like, oh, is that it? Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Well, we're gonna do it anyway, though, because people love Gladiator, and we're gonna give our after the endings. So, Phil, why don't you go ahead and take us through the events of the movie? Okay. Well, Maximus Decimus Meridius, played by Russell Crowe, is a Roman general and is loved by the people, and also the elderly emperor, Marcus Aurelius, played by Richard Harris. Marcus picks Maximus to be his, his heir over his own son. Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix. I always thought Commodus was a pretty lousy name, but that was the actual yeah. name of the guy, you know, from real life. So you can't can't really do that. Right. So, but unsurprisingly, Commodus is not happy and ends up getting Maximus's family killed. And Maximus is an, ends up as a gladiator. He vows not to die in the arena and works his way up to confront Commodus and get his revenge. After various bits that go on, and as we say, they weren't that actually that exciting. <laughs> uh, the pair end up confronting each other in the arena. They fight, but Commodius cheats and stabs Maximus in the side. Maximus kills Commodus, but ends up dying of his wounds. Maximus is carried away and is given a burial as a soldier of Rome, while Commodus' body is left where it fell. And that's Gladiator. Nicely done. A good way to boil down a three-hour movie to the most important yes. parts, I think. Yes. Oh, and Oliver reads in it. He ends up uh, training, well, not so much training, but uh, advising Russell Crowe's character as it goes on. And he's pretty good, but it, sadly it was his last role. Right, Yeah. right. But that's uh, that's the rundown of Gladiator. Mike, what have you got, though, for your day after? Okay, well, it is now one year later, 181 AD. From the ashes of Maximus's funeral, a new religion has arisen, the Maximists. While he was acknowledged to be just a man and not a deity, his adherence to principles of fairness, justice, and equality becomes a rallying cry for the oppressed. The Romans, not known for being particularly open to new religions, or so I've been told, <laughs> begin to imprison and torture practitioners of Maximism, killing those that they can't convert to standard religious practices. Young Lucius, Commodus's nephew, who secretly looked up to Maximus, begins to practice in secret, and as he gets older, he begins to become an active part of the religion, helping it to remain safely underground. As the religion continues to grow, Lucius becomes one of the leaders of the faith. And that's where I'm going to leave things for now. But I'm going to I'm going to say this. I think I take it in a direction that people won't expect. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I've done the religious cult thing before. Yeah. I don't want people to think that I'm repeating myself. Yeah. So I I try to do something a little different with this one. But it takes a you know it's a slow payoff. No, I like that though. I like the fact Maximus was the way he lived his life would end up doing that. So it's 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 almost it's it's like a religion and a philosophy though way to live. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think it starts off kind of as a philosophy, but sort of yeah. morphs into religion. Well, that, but we'll, that, we'll see how it goes. Over time. Oh, no, I like that, though. It's a good way of taking it. Thank you, thank you. All right, how about your day after? Okay, my day after goes a different way. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, Maximus wakes. He can smell fresh bread cooking and hear his wife and son talking in the kitchen. He gets up, washes, and joins them for breakfast. The sun is shining and all is well. Since his death, he has thanked Jupiter and the other gods for reuniting him with his family. He's often visited by Mars, the Roman god of war, spring and justice. They play chess and talk tactics of various great battles. However, one day Mars does not show up at the appointed time. Instead, Bologna, or Bologna, I'm not sure how you pronounce it because, you know, I'm not from that time. Right. Uh, she's the goddess of war, conquest and peace arrives. Terrible things have happened, she says. I need your help. And that's my day after. Oh, I like it, going a little metaphysical. Yeah, super duper, you know, gods and monsters and things. I dig it. You do that very well, so I, I always enjoy it when you when you jump into that realm. Well, I hope I don't disappoint you this time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you won't, Phil. Okay, though. Well, let's see what's happened. What's happening with the Maximists? Okay. Well, it is now 1811. 1811. Okay. Yes, that's a bit of a jump. Yeah. 1811. Yes. Okay. A bit of a jump. Excellent. Yep. Go on. Maximism survived the fall of Rome. Over the centuries, it's grown into a full-blown religion, rivaling the likes of Christianity, Judaism, and Buddhism. Grand Bishop Lucius the 81st is a man with ambition. He has plans to use the burgeoning railroad in the Americas to spread the gospel of Maximism in the new country. 
He travels the world using his influence to change the course of events in ways that will benefit him and his church. He inspires a citadel massacre of a competing religion in Cairo, Egypt. He helps the British fleet defeat the French in the Battle of Lissa. He is secretly behind revolutionary riots in Buenos Aires. He manipulates the Georgian church to remove Anton II from power and even helps American forces defeat the Indians at the Battle of Tippecanoe. Slowly, the tide of the world's religions and politics begin to sway in the direction that Lucius wants. And that's my immediate aftermath. Wow, you've certainly gone epic with this one. I'm trying. Huge, I yeah, really yeah. kind of want to do something a little different. Yeah, so. I like it. Thanks. Wow. Yeah, well. One, one man, one man and the way he lived his life changed the world. That's right. Okay. All right, well, let's hear then about uh, Maximus and the afterlife here. Bellona explains how sh there have been rumors of an uprising in the underworld, yet nothing has been heard from Pluto. Mars had gone to investigate, and again, nothing was heard from him. Then his helm was returned to Jupiter with a message saying, I now rule the underworld, and we will be coming for you. It was signed, Commodus. Ooh, I didn't see that coming. Ah, uh, well, let's see. That's why I need your help, said Bologna. Maximus nods, rises, and goes to his wife and son. He kisses them, and explains he has to go and help the gods. That's my immediate aftermath. Very cool. I like that. Yeah, well, I thought, you know, just go, let's go, let's go all out, just go... It's, you know, sword and sandals. Let's go the other aspect of that kind of thing with the gods. Yeah, absolutely. It fits perfectly. Thank you. Okay, so let's go on. What's happening then in the world where is it Pope Archbishop Lucius is uh, manipulating things? All right. It is the year 2811. Holy whoa. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Maximism is the only religion. Supreme papal leader Lucius the 180th rules most of the Western world with an iron fist. There are pockets of other religions, such as Christianity, that survive, but they're relegated to operating in the shadows, and they basically work as small resistance cells, trying to restore the religious freedoms of the 20th century. Lucius, however, wants Maximism to be the one true religion, so he imprisons people who are found to practice any other religions. Under pressure not to kill them outright, he reinstates the gladiatorial games of ancient Rome, repurposing the abandoned sporting arenas of the major cities and turning them into massive combat arenas. Thousands and thousands of citizens watch as religious dissenters are pitted against physically superior Maximist soldiers, and the result is never pretty. Until one day, a new prisoner enters the arena. His name is Maximus. Oh, excellent. Full circle. Thank you. Thank Fu you. Yeah. That's Future gladiators as well. Brilliant. Right. I know. That would make for a cool movie, I think, yeah. like in the year 3000, like Future Gladiators. Well, you could do know. a full... Not robot jocks, though. Oh, no, not robot But you could do a... Because <laughs> it's covering such a huge length of time. You could do a, you know, a big epic TV show, seven series, and each series is like a different generation right? going through, yeah. That's what I was kind of thinking. I was trying to like you know go generationally. I thought that would be yeah. neat. So. Wow. Oh, no, I like that. Thank you. All right. Well, let's hear. I want to hear about your epic battle, so bring it on. Okay. It felt like the war had been going on for an eternity. Commodus had demons, damned souls, and evil creatures in his army, while Maximus led the forces of the gods while Bologna oversaw the war and the many different dimensions in which it was taking place. The battle was now for the very souls of all that had fallen, and possibly the world, the universe, and everything else. So, you know, a lot at stake. <laughs> yeah. Maximus's army was full of warriors who had fought and died alongside him. There were also warriors and creatures of legend. Battles were fought and lost, but Maximus kept on pushing and made headway. Eventually, Maximus and a small force made it through and now faced Commodus. Like his dark soul, he was now a hideous, twisted being. You know, but they always seem to end up being all you know, bigger and you know, with pointy bits and teeth and things. It's always so unfair. Right. Uh, he had the heads of Pluto and Mars hanging from his belt. Maximus challenged Commodus to single combat to decide the war, and Commodus, drunk on his power, accepted. Maximus, ready for Commodus' treachery, counted every move. They fought for days... Weeks and longer with neither tiring. Maximus, though, pretending to make a mistake, waited and was rewarded when Commodus tried to once again sneak an attack. Moving swiftly, Maximus deflected the blow, forcing the blade into Commodus's throat, killing him. Now it is over, said Maximus, as Commodus disintegrated into nothing. Now that's my long term. I like it. That is epic. Thank you, yeah. Big, huge battle, you know. And who cares if it's CG? That needs to be CG, that one, because the only way to <laughs> right. do it justice. Yeah, I'm down with that. <laughs> but that's uh, that's Gladiator. Very cool. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here, Phil. I'm going to say I like both of our endings better than I like the actual movie. Yeah, thank you, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I'd, I'd be maybe happy I'm to, a little biased. I'd be happy but... to see uh, Russell Crowe in either of them. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do still like Russell Crowe. I, I mean, his career has had some ups and downs, but I do think he's still a talented actor. Oh yeah, yeah. I do like him. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Phil, as you are the triviator, why don't you go ahead and give us some gladiator trivia? Triviator. Holy crap. Okay. <laughs> uh, Oliver Reed, as we said, died, but there was three weeks of principal photography left. So the script was rewritten again, and CGI was used to give Reed's character a proper resolution, and that all cost $3.2 million. Ooh, mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he could have said, you know, He's gone. He's gone to Sardinia or somewhere like that. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Uh, Russell Crowe broke bones in his foot, hip, and he injured both bicep tendons, tendons during the arena scenes. Well, that's what you get when you're fighting a real tiger. Yes. Yes. Uh, Ten thousand costumes were created for the cast and extras. Wow. That, that's a lot. Uh, Maximus's yeah. pet wolf was actually a female Teruvian Belgian shepherd named Kite, and this goes on to be more relevant for people in the UK, but she also appeared in the UK soap EastEnders as Wellard. Oh, yeah. There's the right. dog know, in that. I know EastEnders. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, which was a bit crazy. Uh, Mel Gibson, Antonio Banderas, Hugh Jackman, Tom Sizemore were all either considered or auditioned for the role of Maximus. Hmm. Uh, Mel Gibson ruled himself out because he thought he was too old. Interesting. But uh, I could have... I could have seen him in it. Yeah, I, mean, I could have seen him. Actually, all of them, maybe, not, probably not Tom Sizemore. I could have seen Tom Sizemore in as a supporting role. Right. But uh, Mel, Antonio and Hugh, I could have seen... In the main role. Right. But yeah, that's uh, that was Ridley Scott's Gladiator. All right, there you go. Okay, well, that wraps up our endings for Gladiator and Dude, Where's My Car? So let's move on to 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 Episodes, wherein we take a year of Hollywood and share our top 10 favorite films from that year. This week, said year is 1948. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your time machine and tell us what the world was like right before the 50s came along. Yes, so let's see. Here we go. 1948, the UK Prime Minister was Clement Attlee. The US President was Harry S. Truman. And events that happened in that year, we saw Warner Brother showing the first ever colour newsreel. Burma gained independence from the UK. Kentucky Air National Guard pilot Thomas Montel crashed while pursuing a supposed UFO. All right. Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated. Uh, the Soviet Union began to jam the Voice of America broadcast. The Costa Rican Civil War begins. So once again, you know, as I said last episode, all the events this, you know, that we see now and people going, oh, it's dreadful. It's never been bad. There was, there was years when it was way, way worse. <laughs> but, uh, right. it, you know, it's all relevant to where we are now. Yep. Uh, yep. It also saw the Hells Angels being founded in California huh. way back in 1948. Uh, yeah, right. The World Health Organization was established by the United Nations. Hmm. The English-built Land Rover was unveiled at Amsterdam Motor Show. The first monkey astronaut, Albert I, was launched into space from White Sands, New Mexico. Has there ever been a film based on the monkeys that were sent into space, apart from that yeah. one with Matthew Broderick? Right, but that was a different, that was like yeah. a fictional. Yeah, yeah. That was about the testing monkeys more yeah. than about them actually in space. Yeah, they've never done what Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and Columbia right. Records introduced its long-playing 33 and a third RPM phonograph format, which sort of changed the face of music right, for a while. Right. Uh, we also saw the births of these very talented people. T-Bone Burnett, Carl Weathers, John Carpenter, <laughs> uh, Rick James Teller of Penn & Teller, Barbara Hershey, James Taylor, Billy Crystal, William Gibson, John Delancey, Bonnie Bedelia, Dan Simmons, Al Gore, Terry Pratchett, Grace Jones, Kathy Bates, John Renault, uh, Jeremy Irons, Phil Hartman, George R.R. R. Martin, Samuel L. Jackson, Olivia Newton-John, and Joe Beth Williams. And we saw the passing of Mahatma Gandhi, Babe Ruth, and Mary Nolan. But we have the film debuts in 1948 of Bo Bridges, Montgomery Clift, Doris Day, Rock Hudson, Klaus Kinski, Christopher Lee, and Debbie Reynolds. Wow. Yes, yeah, uh, so quite the eventful year. It certainly was. Some good debuts there, some big names. Without a doubt. Mm. But that's 1948. Now let's get on to our favorite 10 films of that year. Okay, well, or in my case, it's my favorite five films. Uh, this is one of those years where I have not seen a full 10 films from the year. Uh, so I'm going to share the top five that I want to see and then the top five that I have seen. We've done it before that yeah. way a few times. Oh, I, I, I have seen 10 films from that year, but I was surprised because there were lots of big movies out then. There are quite a few which I hadn't actually seen, so right. I still, it's always, as always, whenever we do this, I have a huge list of films I want to go and see straight away. Yep, yep, exactly. And then there's never enough time to watch them. Right, right. <laughs> okay, then, so what have you got then for your number 10? All right, well, again, this is the top, the, the first five are ones that I want to see. So my number 10 is The Adventures of Don Juan, starring Errol Flynn, uh, in very much a role along the lines of his Robin Hood role, that kind of swashbuckly adventure hero thing. Yeah. Uh, and I always like Errol Flynn, and I like a good adventure movie, so that's my pick for number 10. Excellent. I do like Errol Flynn as well. I haven't seen that one, so that's another one I need to 
fill the gap in my viewing sure. pleasure. But uh, my number 10, I've got a feeling probably be on your list later on, but it's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Right. And it's uh, Bud Abbott, Luke Costello getting up to the crazy hijinks with the uh, Frankenstein's monster, this time played by Glenn Strange, the Wolfman played by Lon Chaney Jr. and Count Dracula played by Bella Lugosi. So, you know, some big names, the classic, the classic monsters, to be honest. Yep. Uh, the, the makeup. Uh, it's very funny. Uh, oh, and also you got uh, a cameo by Vincent Price at the end, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I think just or just his voice, uh, but it's very funny, and it's I, I quite like the fact you ha- you do have the iconic monsters. Their roles are pretty pretty serious, but you have Abbott and Costello just making a mockery of it all, reacting to what's going on, and it it, it does work really well. Yes, I, I do indeed like it. it does. But that's my number ten. All right, very good. Well, my number nine is a film called The Three Musketeers. You might have heard of it. Um, This is one of many, many versions. This one stars Gene Kelly and Lana Turner. And I've always really enjoyed The Three Musketeers story. I've I've enjoyed most every filmed version of it I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, And this is one that – this was one of those ones where I was kind of like, hmm, have I seen this movie or not? But the more research I did, the less convinced I was that I'd actually seen it. So uh, definitely on my list to get to because, like I said, I'm a big fan of, of that story and I like to see any version I can get my hands on. Yeah, it's, I mean, I was in the same boat. I'm, I've, I do like The Three Musketeers, and I've seen quite a few films. I couldn't remember whether I'd seen this one or not, so that's why it didn't make my list, otherwise it probably would. Fair enough. I've got a vague recollection of seeing it, but I couldn't remember for definite. Yeah, I know how that is. Yeah. But, uh, my number nine is The Pale Face, which uh, starred Bob Hope and Jane Russell, and Jane Russell was playing Calamity Jane, and Bob Hope's playing a dentist who's he's not very good at that, and he's also a bit of a coward, and he ends up meeting Calamity Jane, and he ends up in a various chain of events marrying her and people end up thinking he's a hero and Jane Russell is so cool Bob Hope's very funny and it just works very well the chemistry between them is good and I do like a bit of a comedy western every now and again and this is a good one sounds like a good one I, I looked at that uh, it almost made my list of movies I want to see as I have not seen it but didn't quite make it fair enough uh, my number eight is a movie called I Walk Alone starring Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas and it is a crime thriller crime drama if you will uh, and I just thought the story of it sounds really neat it's about these two kind of guys who are partners in crime and then they sort of split up and have a falling out and then you know they try to get each other basically but uh, I've always liked the pairing of Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. I think they're great on screen together. I know they had made several movies together. I think they made four or five together. And I believe this was maybe the first one, although I could be wrong about that. So don't don't hold me to that. But uh, so I just saw that they were in this together. The story sounds cool, like a good crime thriller. So it's on my list. Yeah, I was. Uh, I mean, I like the pair of them as well. But uh, I was surprised I hadn't seen that one. Right. When I was going through the list, I was I was reading. I was going, oh yeah, and then I, w- I went, oh no, I've not seen <laughs> right, that one. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But uh, yeah, no, an excellent choice. But my number eight is uh, it's a Shakespeare one. It's an adaptation of Hamlet, directed by and starring Sir Laurence Olivier. And I've seen it a few times, and I quite like it. Uh, for those of you who not, don't necessarily like Shakespeare, he did manage to cut it down from four, the four-hour play to uh, about two hours worth of content, and got rid of a couple of characters. But it still works, and Laurence Olivier is a cracking actor. Uh, but it's, it's the it's the plot of Hamlet. You, even if you haven't seen it, you probably know the plot anyway. And it's this is a particularly good one because Laurence Olivier was a well respected actor for good reason. And if you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. Very good. Well, my number seven is a film called Sorry, Wrong Number, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Burt Lancaster, who makes a second appearance on my list. Uh, and mostly just because it sounds like a really cool story. You know, Barbara Stanwyck plays a woman who picks up a phone and accidentally overhears two people plotting a murder, but she doesn't know who they are or who they're planning to kill. And so she goes to the police, but they can't help her because they have no evidence. So she has to try and figure it out. And her husband disapproves. And so it sounds very Hitchcockian. Uh, and I, I do like Barbara Stanwyck and I like Burt Lancaster. So I just I really thought this just that was one of those ones where the story sounded really interesting. I was so interested that I didn't even read the whole synopsis because I didn't want to give away. Oh, cool, yeah. You know, who, who did what. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to tracking this one down. Yeah, it's another one I hadn't seen, but the, the plot, it also sounds a bit like The Conversation. Yeah, right, right. Film, but uh, we, we went after the ending for yeah. that one in episode 46, listeners, if you haven't heard that one. But uh, no, that's uh, that does sound like a good one. I do like that kind of plot where it's just an ordinary person stumbling across some kind of, you know, as you say, attempted murder or you know other conspiracy. Right. It's always usually ends up being good. Exactly. Okay. Well, my number seven is uh, one which is actually uh, it's got a bit of ballet about it. It is the Red Shoes by Powell and Pressburger, and it's about a ballerina who joins an established ballet company and she becomes the lead dancer in a new ballet called the Red Shoes, uh, which is based on the fairy tale uh, by Hans Christian Andersen. But it's uh, I've only been to see 
one actual real life ballet, but I did enjoy it. Uh, that was Nutcracker Suite, and that was only last year. But uh, I've always liked The Red Shoes. It's beautifully filmed. I did like Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's films. It's a matter of life and death is one of my big favourites of theirs. But uh, this one, it just because they always had, they make everything look gorgeous, and it's you know huge big sets, and the, the way they film everything was it seemed to be ahead of its time. It's fresh and dynamic, and uh, it, it might it probably doesn't sound appealing to a few people out there, but uh, honestly, it's well worth. Uh, at least taking a look at because it could just sweep you along in the story and the dance and the way it's all filmed. It's just uh, even if you don't like that kind of thing, as on a technical level, it can it could probably teach you an awful lot. Brian De Palma and Martin Scorsese both named it one of their all-time favorite films. Very cool. Oh, also, it was voted the eighth greatest British film of all time. Oh, very yeah. good. That's impressive. Yes. Well, I'm sad to say it won't be on my list as I have not seen that one, <laughs> but it is certainly one I'm interested in tracking down. All right, well, my number six is the one I'm the most interested in seeing, I'm looking forward to the most, and it is called The Night Has a Thousand Eyes. And it stars Edward G. Robinson, one of my favorite actors, and he plays a show fortune teller who gets real psychic powers. And that's pretty much all I think I need to say about that because it sounds like a really cool premise. It does sound cool, yeah. I hadn't seen it as well. I'm reading it. I remember going, wow, that sounds like a good one. <laughs> yeah, and things don't go so so easily for him apparently. So uh, I love Edward G. Robinson. Uh, you know, Mostly he played gangsters, but I have seen him in some other roles which I really liked him in. So this one just sounded really intriguing and uh, kind of different from a lot of the films they were making in 1948. So I am definitely looking forward to, to checking that one out. It's pretty high on my list. Yeah, it de- definitely sound like uh, – quite a departure to his usual roles but uh yeah yeah he did sure. he did when he when he did go off from the usual things he did he, he did do some great stuff right right well he, even his usual stuff was really good but yeah they did. <laughs> yeah he's good in everything but yeah. i know what you mean okay well my number six is uh scott of the antarctic depicts the ill-fated scott uh expedition to reach the south pole and we have john mills playing scott who i always liked and it's a brilliant one it's these men these adventurers explorers facing the harshest of conditions and it all goes totally wrong i love these old films though and they just get they do lots of the stuff within you know sound stages but it just has this uh, charm's the wrong word but just has this almost like a reality even though you know it's not but and just with the the quality of the acting as well it's the it's this stiff upper lip you know the british kind of carry on i'm going off for a walk and i'll be back and it's just these men and it's a hopeless situation but you just you just pulled along even though you know how it ends and it's uh it's i've seen it many times and it's uh, every time you slay going oh, maybe this time they'll get they'll make it and get, get back <laughs> right. but uh, it's uh, right it's a cracking movie all right well my number five we're now we're moving into my top five which is films i've actually seen yeah. and it is the monkey's paw one of the earlier adaptations of the classic story of a monkey's paw which grants three wishes but each wish of course comes with something um a little unexpected we shall say uh and this is just a movie i was i was I've been obsessed with the story since I was a kid. I remember reading it in elementary school, I think, and I just was I was flabbergasted by it. I mean, it's kind of dark actually for a young yeah, a I remember young reader. It creeped me out when I read it. Yeah. yeah, but it's such a like great like kind of Twilighty Zone type of story, and so um, I've always loved it. And so this is one of those earlier versions. It's not necessarily the greatest movie in the world, but I love the story so much, and it is a, a f- relatively faithful adaptation of it. So. Uh, that makes my number five. An excellent choice. And it's one I hadn't seen that version, so that's why it's not on my list. But my number five is, uh, it could be on yours, I'm not sure. It's uh, Fort Apache, directed by John Ford and starring John Wayne and Henry Fonda. After the American Civil War, and you've got a veteran Captain York, played by John Wayne. And he's uh, expected to replace the outgoing commander, Fort Apache. But the uh, commander's given instead to Lieutenant Colonel Owen Thursday, played by Henry Fonda. And they, you know come to blows they don't agree it also stars shirley temple uh so big names in this one uh, you know and john ford's directing it so you know it's going to be damn good and it certainly is well i can reveal it is not on my list because i have not gotten around to watching that one yet as okay. much yeah, yeah enough, as much yeah. of a fan as i am of john ford and john wayne together yeah. that is not one of theirs that i've managed to get to yet yeah i mean because i'm a john wayne I, I do like his films but he's never been i've never gone wow john wayne but i i did like him in this role because it's uh just a bit, bit more meaty. He got, he got stuck into this one. And uh, right. Henry Fonda's always great. Yes, absolutely. 
All right. Well, my number four is a movie that has appeared on your list, though, and it is one you predicted correctly. It's Abbott <laughs> and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yay. Uh, and of, of the Abbott and Costello meet the Universal Monsters series, I think there was three of them, uh, this one's my favorite. It does have kind of those three classic monsters in it. And, you know, I'm just I'm – a, I'm a big sucker for Abbott and Costello. I love their comedy. I think they're hysterical. I love them as a kid. I still love them as an adult. And so not a real big surprise that this one would end up on my list. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's see. This this one could be on your list. I don't know. Uh, but it's Key Largo. This is my number four, Key Largo. Stars Humphrey Bogart, Edward G. Robinson, and Lauren Bacall. Uh, also Lionel Barrymore and Claire Trevor. And directed by John Huston. So, uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a Just fil- a little bit of a pedigree there. Yeah, it's a film noir. And it was also the fourth and final pairing of uh, Bogart and Bacall. But it's all Humphrey Bogart arrives at a hotel, the Hotel Largo in Key Largo, Florida, where there's various people there and, you know, femme fatales, you know, who's doing what, why are they doing this? And it's it's a convoluted, all over the place kind of plot with these great characters and you're going, ooh, something's not right here. And it's uh, a cracker. Uh, to say anything more about the plot would spoil it. Right, right. Well, I can tell you, Phil, that you are on the right track because, of course, it's on my list. It's my number three. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. It's Humphrey Bogart and Edward G. Robinson in a film directed by John Huston. Of course I love this movie. Uh, And it's it's everything that you said it is. You know, I mean, it's just – it's just brilliant. Bogart is so great in it. Uh, seeing him and Edward G. Robinson pair off, you know, against each other at odds is like yeah. just one of the greatest sort of meetings of like the, the 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 film tough guys. I mean, from that day and age, those two are you know really two of the kind of toughest guys around. Even though Edward G. Robinson was small in stature, I mean, yeah. he made up yeah. for it with personality. So yeah, I do I do love this film very very much. It is one of my one of my favorites from that era. And of course, everyone knows what a big Humphrey Bogart fan I am. So no big no big surprise. What I like in particular about those you know films from that time as well especially when the actors are really good and it's it's, it's a noir as well so it does happen is the looks they give each other you know nothing said but it's like somebody looking across the room and there's all this and you just go wow you just you can just you can tell what the characters that you know how they feel about each other just the way right. they look at each other and it's just you don't get that as often as you should you know people are actually acting you know without you know all the all the exposition which often takes place in many films these days right right yeah for sure okay but my number three is is an Italian film directed by Vittorio De Sica and it is Bicycle Thieves. And it's basically the story of a poor father in Rome trying to find a stolen bicycle. Uh, and he's got his son with him and he needs to find his bike, otherwise he'll lose his job. And just this poor man trying to do the best for his family. And he's, it's just not much is actually spoken. But again, as I just mentioned, it's, you know, the looks people give and the way it's filmed. And it's all, you know, the city of... City of Rome is beautiful, but it's this shows, you know, some of the seedy side as well, and it comes in close in places and then expands, and you just amazing camera work. Uh, again, if you're a student of film, it's 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 worth checking out because it's just the way it's shot is just amazing, and the performances are great with this this man and his son, and this, you can just see the the look of despair on his face when he realizes because he had all his hope and the bike's stolen, and he's just he'll do anything to get it back, but. It's my number three. A very famous film, one I have not yet gotten around to, unfortunately. Well, fair enough. I mean, lots of people won't have seen it, but it's uh, it's a brilliant movie. Oh, I'm sure. I, yeah. I will definitely want to get to it one of these days. Okie dokie. So into the top two next, aren't we? Yes, we are. Yes. Okay. What have you got for your number two? Now, hold on. Before we go any further, I think we might have some similarities in the top two. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so my number two is a film by one of my favorite directors, and it is Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. That's a bingo. Yeah, it's, right. It's my number two as well. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, this isn't necessarily one of his most highly regarded films. I mean, I think, if anything, it's most famous for the fact that it's shot to look as if it's t- done in one continuous take. Yeah, yeah. There, there are cuts in it, but they're like eight minutes between cuts, so it's all done, and in, in, in it's, you know, it's all put together and sort of camera trick ways to make it seem like the whole movie is one giant take. Yeah. And that's kind of where the film, I think, gets most of its fame for. But I think it's a really, really fantastic thriller. I mean, Jimmy Stewart is in it, of course, and he's terrific. And, um, you know, he he plays this professor who comes to a party with some students. They have a dead body hidden under the table. And he kind of 
gets a wind that something is going on and tries to piece together what it is. And so it's like this exercise in ratcheting tension. As the film goes on, it gets more and more tense as he gets closer and closer to figuring out what's going on. And I, I just love the movie on its own merits. I think it's a really great thriller with a great performance from James Stewart. And I, I just remember the first time I watched it just being blown away by it and just like biting my fingernails to the quick, trying, you know, like what's going to happen? What's going to happen? So yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's what I, how I feel about it. Because I, I find it weird because it, it – at first, you're like that. Every time somebody gets you know near to the chest where it is, you're going, oh, no, you don't want them to find it because you sort right. of want the guys to get away with it, but even though you know they've killed the guy. Right. Uh, but then it's like James Stewart, you follow along with him, and I love it. You're just watching James as he you can see him putting things together, and he's just going, just a little glances here and there every now and again. Somebody says something, you can see him like thinking back to what else has been done, and it's just his acting is brilliant and just how he pulls it, how he pulls together these little separate threads and clues and works it out yeah and then suddenly where you go from going oh no i don't want don't want anybody to look in it to going oh i can't wait until he looks in it or you know he <laughs> yeah. finds out where the body actually is right and i like the way it twists around and again as you said it all looks like it's one continuous shot uh so it's great watching it trying to spot where you know the the take you know the, yeah the cuts are made and it's, yeah. I, again on a technical level it's it's second to none and it's uh it's similar to, though to uh what was the other one? Hitchcock one. Lifeboat, where it's these group of people in this this little place, and that's all we see. Yeah, yeah, I love Lifeboat. I, I like the fact he did do these ex- almost experimental films where, you know, it's a limited area. Yeah. And we're stuck there as well with the uh, with the protagonists. But it's, right. a, it's a cracking one. I, and as you say, it's not always the one people pick when they say, you know, great uh, Hitchcock movies, but it's, uh, it's, it's very good. Yeah, it's one of my favorites of his. It really is. I just think it's really a fantastic watch. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, moving on to my number one, then. I have a sneaking suspicion we could be on the same track here. And if we're not, I might be a little disappointed in you, Phil. Does, so. it, does it involve – do we need badges for this one? <laughs> we we don't need no stinking badges, yeah. as a matter of fact. That's right. It is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring one Humphrey Bogart and also directed by – John Houston uh, yes. and Humphrey Bogart plays Fred Dobbs, a down in his luck treasure hunter who gets in a little over his head down the Sierra Madre. And this is one of my favorite, favorite films. I really uh, this is really around the time when I started to become a Bogart fan. Um, I think I've told the story before about how I was never into him when I was younger watching Hollywood movies. Yeah, yeah. But then in college, I, I got into him. We watched a bunch of his films in a film noir class and some other film movies. And this was the one that I think I really sort of was like, wow, like he's so amazing in this movie. And and I think uh, the movie itself is just a really, really great film. It's it's intense and, and dark and has some funny moments. And you never know what's going to happen to these characters. And, and Bogey just carries it all on his back without even missing a beat. Has this great really great ending and uh, I just I really love this movie and to me it's really the epitome of what made Bogart such a great actor yeah well I I didn't see this one this wasn't one of my first Bogart films I'd seen like Casablanca and uh, Maltese Falcon and a couple of others yeah I'd seen a couple so it was surprising to see this one because he was playing quite a different character you know he wasn't he wasn't well he was never really the good guy this one was definitely you know you know he was jealous he was greedy and he was different from the other characters he played so it was suddenly I was seeing this whole different side of uh, Bogart when I watched this one for the first time. Yeah, because he was always the, like the guy in the suit, always cool and collected. Yeah, Whether yeah, he was playing yeah. like a gangster or a good guy, he was always very like, yeah, very cool you and know, collected, martini, yeah. you know, bow tie, whatever, you know, always looking dapper. And then here he's just like dirty and, and petty and yeah, and losing it part over of the everything, scenes. yeah. Right. I mean, oh, it's brilliant. It's, it's such a, it's a brilliant movie and a brilliant performance. Yeah, it just shows, you know, it's a great example of uh, what greed can do to to people, right? And it's just uh, and the things they will do for gold. Yes, yeah. This is one of those movies where if people say they don't like black and white films, they don't like classic movies. This is one of the ones I'll point them to because it, it does it is so engrossing and so engaging that even if you think you don't like classic films, this is a movie that you will enjoy. Yeah, I mean, it's always I always I never like that argument. People go, I don't like black and white films or I don't like classic movies, and you go, well, that just means you haven't seen enough of them. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But this is a good one to start people off on, in my opinion. Well, it must be because it was on number one. Right. I know. And top, a joint top two this time. Yeah, so clearly we're nice. on, yeah. the, on the same page. Yes. Very cool. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our 100 Years of Hollywood and 100 episodes for this week. Phil, why don't you tell people what we're going to be discussing in next week's episode? Okay. Yes. Uh, next week, we will be going after the ending of Pretty Woman and Moon. That's a nice little mix of films. 
Yeah, Moon is definitely like a cult classic. If you haven't seen it yet, it's directed by Duncan Jones and stars Sam Rockwell. It's a really cool little science fiction thriller. I don't love it as much as a lot of people do, um, but I do like it. And I know there's a lot of people uh, who think it's just this really, really amazing, brilliant science fiction film. So definitely worth tracking down because I don't think it's the most seen film we've ever done, but I think people will like it. So so worth watching. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed it. Some really good uh, practical effects as well, if you if you're looking at the uh, visual effects of things. Right, right. So, and Sam Rockwell does a stunning performance. Yes, he's terrific. So it is a good movie, uh, but like I said, not, not one everyone has seen, so definitely track it down before our next episode if you'd like. Yeah, and also we're doing it as well because Duncan Jones' new film called Mute, which I think is hitting Netflix possibly this year, is also set in the same universe of you know, the series, so there could be some kind of crossover with that as well. Right. Yes, we'll also be go- doing our top ten films of 1982. Uh, the 80s are always fun. Yeah, should be some fun films in that one. Yes, a lot to look forward to in the next episode, so please make sure you join us then. And that's going to wrap us up for this episode, so as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I am Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Yeah, well, that's that's how we, we roll. We can't help being naturally right. witty and funny. Yep. So. Yeah, cue one of our unfunniest episodes <laughs> yeah, ever. Yeah, right. <laughs> 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 Hold on. <laughs> I like it. You sound very. I can definitely take you very seriously when you make noises like that. <laughs> that's what you got to do. You know, be be forceful with your cough and your sneezes. <laughs> Hold on. How much is this? Yeah, I'm on my long term, aren't I? Yeah. What? This is my long term. I'm on, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't do the. I hope so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Once there, if you don't know, Phil, I certainly don't. (laughs) Okay, well, Bologna explained. I just keep saying it sounds too much like Bologna. Uh, That's all right. Bologna. Everyone likes Bologna, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, my Bologna has a first name. (laughs) Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you not hear me? So I just went really, really dead. Yeah, it just goes. I was listening to you. Yeah, it's. uh, (laughs) You want me to interrupt you? No, it sounded like I can do that too. No, it sounded like the, the, the total dead from last week. Gotcha. But, uh, but uh, no, you have the this, Total Dead, the total a new dead TV show soon. from AMC. Total Dead, starring Mike and Phil. <laughs> All right, well, that is going to wrap up us. Wrap up us. What am I, Yoda? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wrap up us, you will. Ah, huh? Yes. <laughs> oh, oh boy. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Yes, lots to look forward to. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to do that for the rest of the episode now, aren't you? No. Like, damn it, I just have to get through the outro, Phil. Oh. Now you're starting to sound like Yoda is pleasuring himself. Do it, you can. <laughs> it, that doesn't change what I just said at all. No, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 30 more seconds, Phil. We've got to hold it together for 30 more okay. seconds. Okay, go. All right. Go away, Yoda. <laughs> okay. What was that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. I am Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. You were about to do it in the Yoda voice, weren't you? (laughs) And then the after. (laughs) Such a jerk. (laughs) Yoda is. I've always thought he's a jerk. Right. That's right. Yeah. Everyone loves Yoda, but it turns out he's kind of a bastard. Yeah, he didn't even, you know, he he tricks Luke. You know, he's going, oh, no, I might do. And doesn't even take him to say, no, it's him. He just said, yeah, it's me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Pick those rocks up. Well, you know, at least tell him why you're doing that, you know, Yoda. Give some explanation for the, the, the lessons. Right. See that? And you know what? You know what, Yoda? You're going on the list right next to Ridley Scott. You're on my list now. Ridley <laughs> Scott and Yoda. That's the list so far. Don't piss me off, people, because you get on the list. Mm. <laughs> Is that all he has to say? Really? Mm. That's his big comeback? Ridley Scott. Mm. <laughs> so, now he's back to sound like he's pleasuring himself. <sighs> Good. <laughs> okay. And on that note, it's time to call it a night. Yeah. Good night, Yoda. Good night, Phil. <laughs> Good night, Yoda. Good night, Ridley Scott. Good night, Moon. <laughs> oh, dear God. <laughs>